The reading is Isaiah. This is the vision um, concerning, concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. A rebellious nation. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Thank you, Joy. The uncomfortable words of Isaiah the prophet, 2,700 years old, they are, and they shouldn't make for comfortable reading in here, gathered together on a Sunday morning. I hate it when you gather together, when you stretch out your hands in prayer, my soul hates it. We'll get to that in a bit, but first, are you ever anxious? Do you ever lie awake at night? How much time and energy do you spend worrying? You know, working out how to avoid that risk or that possibility, or how can I protect myself from that circumstance from coming about? Do you ever wonder whether all of that time and energy, all of that imagination and headspace could be better used for something else, should be better used for something else? Does all our anxiety disable us from being the people that we're meant to be? It's the middle of three weeks um, when we're going through uh, the prophet's Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, um, he speaks, he's so concerned, along with all the prophets, as to these questions uh, this morning of um, anxiety, worry, dependence, uh, who we're meant to be, this sort of thing. Uh, next question for you this morning. Do you have any family traits? 
any kind of, I mean, we all have family traits, but um, any, any kind of explicit ones. I grew up in Gallica land. Gallica's my surname. Um, Gallica land in Cardiff, where I grew up. Uh, we had these, these family rules. Um, in theory, we had these family rules. Anyway, I can't remember all of them, probably because my mum's limited enthusiasm for what was doubtless another one of my dad's slightly eccentric kind of projects. We're going to have these Gallica family rules. Um, I'm nothing like him whatsoever, um, thankfully. Uh, but the three that I can remember uh, were, um, oh, what was it? Life's not fair. That's more of a statement than a, the family rule. Always try your best uh, and never tell on your dad. Was, <laughs> that's another reason why I think it might have been more of a dad thing than, um, than my mum's. Um, the Carrington family are with us this morning after the festivities of the weekend. I wonder if there's any Carrington family traits. The only one that I observed was some pretty sharp uh, dance moves. Um, so well done on that one. Laura's family, um, Laura and my wife, much more normal. Uh, they didn't have any of this sort of like explicit, um, you know, mantras going through their families. Um, but this is something we thought about a little bit as we tried to get our heads around nurturing two little people. You know, are we going to have any like, you know, Gallica, Team Gallica mantras, um, any Gallica family rules, anything like that? We came across um, uh, the, uh, one that we really liked. We read this little book and it had an, just an anecdote this guy was talking about his family. And he said uh, that every day when he drops his son off at school, uh, the school gate, and they sit there in the car and he says, remember, we are the, and they say it together, and the kids probably like, mm. uh, remember, we are the Smiths. We are kind, encouraging, and we look out for the lonely. How nice is that? And, and then the kid runs off um, into school. Um, the church is often referred to as a family, the family of God. So here's the question. What should our family traits be? And Isaiah is absolutely concerned with this question. There are a couple of um, uh, essential bits of context that we need to hold in our minds before engaging. We're going to get into this hard-hitting poetry of Isaiah uh, this morning. But there's two key verses sort of in the backstory uh, that you, you, unless you get these, you can't really understand what Isaiah's thing is. Why has he um, got his knickers in a twist? What's the, what's the problem with um, that he's speaking into? So the story, we should be up to speed on this if you were here last term with God's unfolding story, but God creates this good world. Um, very quickly, humanity makes a right mess of that. And then by the time you get to just chapter 12 of the first book of the Bible, um, God chooses this family, Abraham. And he says, the point of, of choosing this family and blessing, taking and blessing this family is through them to bring his blessing to all the people. So first, first key verse to hold in our heads, Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, I will bless you. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the point. That's the, the calling, the vocation of the, what becomes the Israelite people group. Okay, uh, the next one. What happens in the story? This family, they wind up in slavery in Egypt. And then there's this dramatic moment of, of mass liberation where they, they're freed along with all sorts of riffraff that come along with them. And they, they come out. And once they get out of Egypt... Uh, there's, this, there's the mountain, and, the, and the God makes this covenant, sort of seals this. Um, it's almost like making the family rules at that point. Makes this, this, this explicit culture-making um, promise together. And Exodus 19 is the second important verse 
for understanding not just Isaiah, but actually getting your head around the whole of the Old Testament and then into the New Testament as well. Exodus 19, um, God's saying to the people, if you obey my voice and keep my covenants, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were called to be different, set apart, as in, the, in the midst of the mess, set apart to be God's treasured possession, a kingdom of priests reflecting. Priest is all about reflecting something, a kind of go-between, reflecting something of God's goodness back into the mess, to be different, to order their society different, not in the kind of standard dog-eat-dog -dog survival of the fittest way, but they were to be this culture, uh, this society based on grace and mercy and looking out for the downtrodden, to be this light to the other nations. Got it? We can keep those up there um, as we get into Isaiah. Uh, verse 1, here we go. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. It's the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, not the Amos of Amos of Amos. This is Amos with a Z, different guy. Um, the Isaiah and Amos were contemporaries back in the 8th century BC. I said 7th century BC last week. I was wrong. Sorry about that. 8th century BC. It makes all the difference, obviously. Anyway, um, anyway, this is the vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, what he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He was a long-term prophet. He had a pretty decent innings, right? Seeing four kings through. With two of those kings, we get a right window on his um, dealings with Ahaz, chapter 7, and Hezekiah, chapter 30, 31, I think, and beyond it is. Um, with Ahaz, the situation is that the two neighboring kingdoms are, rumor has it that they have um, made some sort of alliance and they're marching down on Jerusalem where King Ahaz was, and he's terrified, he's panicked. Um, what's he gonna do? They're, they're gonna rip apart his kingdom, uh, divide it amongst themselves, throw him off the throne at least, probably far worse. And so he, what he's thinking of doing is making this other alliance with Assyria to kind of cover his back and maneuver the threat away, quite understandably perhaps. Into that situation, Isaiah walks in and his basic message is this. He says, thus says the Lord. You can read about it in chapter seven. Trust me on this one. It's gonna be okay, be calm, fear not. You need to stand strong in faith or you're not gonna stand strong at all. Or you're not gonna stand at all. So don't rely on your clever political maneuvers. This is my world, says the, God, says the Lord, your God. I'm bigger than all of that, so trust me. Ahaz does not stand strong. He goes to make his alliance with Assyria, which doesn't end at all well um, for um, the Judahite people. Uh, the other threats dissipated as God said they would, um, and that was that. But the, thing when, the other thing when Isaiah goes into Ahaz, um, goes, to, goes to speak to him, he, he takes with him his son. His son who is named Remnant, a remnant shall return, something like that. Uh, this son's name speaks of the promise over it all, of, of the hope, uh, this persistent, insistent hope that Isaiah can't let go of, even though he pronounces all this judgment, there's all this hope that always seems to accompany it with Isaiah. The thing about bringing his son, why was this a potentially epic moment? Because if you read two kings you hear this damning indictment on Ahaz because Ahaz apparently sacrificed his own child up to the 
Canaanite gods. This was to join in with the most deplorable aspects of the surrounding Canaanite culture, where they'd sacrifice children to the gods of war to protect them in their battles or to have victory. What a contrast. One son given up to the Canaanite gods of war, the other son accompanying his father on this mission of truth. As Isaiah is imploring Ahaz, remember who we are. Remember whose we are. Remember the promise that is over us. Remember how God has set us free, how we don't have to be masters of our own destiny. Remember the covenant, how we're called to be different from all that. So that's Isaiah. That's Ahaz. That's the 8th century BC. And let's get into the the actual words of Isaiah. Verse 2 to 3. Look down at this. And and the the prophets, they they write in poetry, they play on metaphor, vivid metaphor that's to kind of get into your head and evoke all sorts of um, pictures in our imaginations. So what's going on here? Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared up children and I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey his own manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. What's he saying? Literally, Israel, you're dumber than an, dumber than an ass. That's the, that's the, that's the, that's his point right there. Verse five to six, another metaphor coming here. Why should you be beaten up anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart is afflicted from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There's no soundness, only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. What's the picture here? This metaphor of of a whole country being like someone who's been thoroughly beaten up and is just left with no one to care for. What he's saying is like, come on, do you not see that this life without God, this life walking away from who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to be, is no life at all. We're messed up. It clarifies it. Verse 7, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners. This is not working. Our society cannot go on like this. The really scary thing, though, as you look down, verse 10 through 17, is that their rhythms and their rituals of of worshipping God seem to have gone on unchanged, continuing as normal. And it's scary because I imagine that your average Israelite person back in the 8th century BC thought that they were fine. They were fully signed up uh, member of God's people. They kept the Sabbath. They had their Passover feast every year. Uh, or They paid their little direct debit or whatever it was that they did. They were, they were, they were one of the signed up sorted ones, right? But here's the thing. Without looking out for the fatherless, for the widow, for the oppressed, all of those so-called worship rituals that they were carrying on as normal with are hateful to God. Detestable. This is Isaiah's language, not me. I cannot abide them, says the Lord. Isaiah does not hold back. They were ticking the boxes, but failing to actually embody the substance of their vocation from Genesis 12 to bring God's blessing 
to embody his goodness in a priestly, set-apart sort of way. There's supposed to be this different sort of society. They were supposed to be all about compassion, mercy, looking out for the lowly. If our rhythms and rituals of worship are not pushing us out the door into lives of compassion, lives of mercy, moments of grace and generosity, then something is seriously wrong. The measure of our worship is not how loudly we are singing, but it's the words that appear on our bank statements, the entries that appear in our diaries. If we print it out, seriously, if we print it out, last month's bank statement, last month's diary, what sort of reading would it make? Would it be a story of ever greater financial security and trying to hang out with the cool people? And Isaiah would be pretty hard, much harsher than I'm going to be, if that is our story. Is that the story we want for our lives? Can we imagine a better story, a more beautiful story? I often talk about, um, often I have talked about this Sunday moment, and it's picked up in what's happened already with Kath and Chris. This Sunday moment being like a halftime team talk, right? And the, the action is back out there on the pitch. Another way of looking at it would be like this moment where we all gather together um, every Sunday, uh, being like the moment with, the, the, with our, the, that dad and the son in the car at the school gates. And this moment where we kind of remember who we are. We are the Smiths. We are kind and encouraging and we look out for the lonely. And then we find the resources, the identity to go out and go through the school gate and, and live out um, who we are. According to Isaiah, our family traits are this trust and this compassion. And they're related because it's the sort of trust that enables us to let, lay down our anxieties, to walk away from all the worries and our, our self-protection schemes and our risk aversion stuff, to lay that down and to dare to pour ourselves out, to reach out in a kind of generous compassion, the stuff that really matters, the stuff that you're made for. And I'm pleased to say that in our family, if you look around, uh, you will find uh, countless extraordinary examples uh, of this. I um, was, did my vicar training three years in a college in Oxford. Last year, they had a guy training there called Hassan. And Hassan, um, I didn't meet him, but I've heard about him. Uh, he was uh, a Nigerian uh, vicar, came to Oxford to study for a year. He's gone back now. Um, and uh, early on, he's, they're, they're talking to him. <laughs> um, he, was, he was talking about what it's like to minister in a place where you are um, considered the enemy. And he's up in northern, he was, and he back, is back up there now, in northern Nigeria, in a region terrorized by Boko Haram. And he said he got to the point where he'd seen so many colleagues and um, friends uh, attacked and killed uh, that he'd started getting together uh, the money to afford an AK-47 for him. So he could see no other way uh, to, to exist in that place. And he'd made contact with the guy who was going to supply it to him. 
Uh, and in that time, in that moment, season, um, he saw a, a young girl uh, just walking along the street. She was looking along the, going along the ground looking for um, nuts. And she should have been in school. And he said, so he stopped. He said, why aren't you in school? She said, oh, my parents can't afford it. Uh, and he, there and then he felt, as you sometimes do, this deep uh, sense of God saying, I want you to pay for that girl to get into school. Use the gun money for that. And so he, he said to the girl, I'd like, to, um, I'd like to meet your parents. And the girl said, okay, follow me. And she walked. And she, he was following. And to his horror, she crossed the sort of neighborhood dividing lines into the Muslim area. And this is a guy who'd been shot at twice, had a bounty on his head. But he carried on walking, met this girl's family. And uh, they took a bit of convincing and met with the local imam as well. And uh, eventually, the arrangements were made for this girl to enter school, along with her brothers, who were also not in school, all at Hassan's expense. Um, and one thing has led to another in that story. And now 200 kids in this Muslim, poor, poor uh, Muslim neighborhood up there are funded in good schools uh, via the, the church community um, in the same uh, region. It's amazing. Uh, it's, it's who we are. It's what we do. Laying down our self-protection schemes, trusting God in sacrificial, meaningful ways in order to reach out with compassion and bring his blessing. It's the family likeness. Uh, what about the wave of Christian missionaries that I heard about just this week gone who, um, when it was all kicking off in eastern Ukraine, there's a pastor in Donetsk, his name's Sergei, and um, he knew he couldn't just flee. As, as anyone who could really was getting out of there. Um, he's like, no, I'm going I'm to stay. And, and actually, what I'm going to do is, is run a little church planting school right in the midst of this you know, zone where the bullets are flying overhead. And amazingly, numbers of Christians came through this little training program and planted churches on the front line all over um, eastern Ukraine. A remarkable story. It's who we are. It's what we do. That's the family likeness. Trusting God and bringing something of his hope, his blessing into those places, to those people that really need it. To a place of despair. These guys just giving their lives. Um, it's remarkable. What about the pastor in Aleppo who had this big thriving church that was you know, decimated, all the Christians fled and he said he's not going to. And now his church is filled times over with some of the people who've remained former Muslims who are now thriving. As the nations shake, God is doing wonderful things in those places. Remarkable story. We don't get to hear about them on BBC, but they, they, they exist. It's amazing. It's who we are. This is the family likeness, laying down our, our easy grasps at security or what we think is security. Stepping away from all of the anxiety tapes, the worry tapes. Stepping out and just getting on with it anyway. Trusting God, reaching out with compassion. These are the family traits. It's who we are. It's what we do. And if our worship is not so much about coming here on a Sunday, but it's much more about having beautiful things appear on our bank statements. 
having beautiful things appear in our schedule of appointments or parties or whatever it is. Generous things, risky things, Jesus-style things. Then how are we doing? What about you? What about me? What's God's invitation to you in all this? Where is anxiety tying you up in knots? Where might you need to let go of a worry or a self-protection scheme and just trust God? I wanted to say that this, this trusting God thing is not just some, in my experience and many other people's experience, it's not just some kind of um, comforting, logical, mental theory thing. Actually, there is a peace on offer like you wouldn't believe that comes with a wave as we kind of learn to, to pray in those moments, learn to open up, learn to trust God. It's, it's um, astonishing. There's no guarantees. It's important to say that. It's no, it's no like cheap insulation from suffering in life. Hassan may yet be killed in 2017. He's gone back into a place where um, the church has burned down twice. But then the, um, the church in Oxford, uh, as he was going back, um, raised the funds, quite a bit of funds, um, in order to send him with this fireproof marquee. To put it, and that's where they'll be meeting today. There's no insulation from, from what might happen, uh, but there is a peace and a trust and a bigger promise. Uh, we don't have to worry about it anymore. There's a peace that holds us, holds us even should it come to our, our death, when it comes to our death. <laughs> We don't have to fear anymore. We can lay our anxiety aside and step out and get on with living the sort of blessing-bringing lives that we were made to live. Maybe you feel like you've spent too many years um, tied up in knots with anxiety. Maybe, um, actually, you don't even really want to think about uh, presenting your, your bank statements or your schedule to someone like Isaiah. It's important to be true to Isaiah that the last word is not a judgment word, actually, but is a word of hope, of remarkable, insistent grace and hope. Um, the next verses that we haven't read yet, but it starts in that same chapter, chapter 1, 18. He's just been like, you know, I hate all this stuff, I hate all this stuff, get on with doing good and looking after the oppressed and the widow, and come on. And then he says this, come, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. In the grand scheme of things, Isaiah, we'll get more into this next week. He doesn't quite work out how this is going to actually happen. But he's, as we remember from last week, he's tasted this, this radical, life-changing, blow-you-away blow sort of forgiveness from the Lord. He just knows that it's there. And so in the midst of all this, he insists on this, this glorious hope, this glorious offer of grace. 
God's first words to us in Jesus Christ. We live on this side of Jesus. We get to see much more as to how some of this pans out. We can have a whole lot more confidence, actually, in this grace, this, this forgiveness, this life-changing touch from God that is on offer to all of us. His first words to us in Jesus Christ are, come, let us reason together. Do not fear, because we all fall short. We all fail to trust. We all get anxious. We all fold in on ourselves sometimes, and rather than this, this reaching out with compassion. And that's why. That's why we come back here on a Sunday, week after week. It's not to pay lip service to God. It's not to tick a box. Actually, it's to sit here in the car at the school gate with him and have him remind us again who we are. He says, come. Come on now. Let's reason together. Remember, you're one of my children. You can trust me. Fear not. Now step out. Reach out. Reflect something of my goodness in your little way. So as we step out of these doors in a few minutes' time, let's go for it. And let's make him proud. Amen? Let's stand.